Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Jesse Wegman. Jesse is a member of the New York Times editorial board. He covers the Supreme Court and legal affairs. He is the author of the new book, Let the People Pick the President, the Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. I have the book. I read the book. I love the book. Jesse, thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's dive right in. In two of the previous five presidential elections, the person who won the most votes, the person who won the national popular vote, didn't win the Electoral College. Let's talk about the most recent time that happened. 2016, Hillary Rodham Clinton gets more votes. She wins the national popular vote. She, of course, as we all know, loses the Electoral College. Can you remind us of those numbers? By how many people did Hillary Clinton win the national popular vote? And by how many people did she lose the Electoral College? Well, she won the popular vote in the entire country by nearly 3 million votes when all the counting was done. And she lost because of the results in three states, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. In those three states, I think about 13 million people cast ballots And the total difference between her and Donald Trump in those three states combined was about 77, 78,000 votes. And those 77, 78,000 votes, because of the what are called winner take all rules in those states, as are in most states of the country, Donald Trump won all 46 of those states' electoral votes. Hillary Clinton won zero, even though the the difference in the balloting was less than 1%. And now I think I know why you wrote a book called uh, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. So- I think most of the listeners know, but in just a couple of sentences, can you explain what the Electoral College is and why we don't actually directly elect the president? What is the system? Sure. Well, I think one of the reasons you say most of the listeners probably know is because this is a legal podcast and you probably have a legally intelligent audience. And I will say this, you know, I went to law school myself and I was shocked and chastened by how little I actually understood about both the history of the adoption of the Electoral College and the Electoral College's functioning. I thought, oh, I should know all this stuff, right? (laughs) I'm a decently smart guy. I follow politics. I know my history. And yet there was an amazing amount that I didn't understand uh, or thought I understood and just had wrong. So, you know, the The basics of the Electoral College were laid out by the framers of the Constitution in 1787. Uh, And and I think just the simplest way to explain it is it's a a method of uh, having an intermediary body of electors who choose the president um, rather than the citizens themselves doing so directly. And those electors are allocated to the states based on the state's representation in Congress. That means however many representatives they have, plus their two senators. California has 53 representatives and two senators, so California gets 55 electoral votes. That's how it's been since the founding, and that's how it is today. Everything else about the Electoral College that we fight about and we say, should we have an Electoral College, should we have a popular vote? Everything else is not in the Constitution. Everything else is decided by states, state legislatures passing laws regarding how to choose their electors and how to award them to the candidates. And that is really the system that we are arguing about when we argue about the Electoral College. So I think that's one of the things, if if nothing else, that I really want to drive home is that the debate we're having is a sub-constitutional debate. The parts of the Electoral College that are in the Constitution are fairly minimal and not in dispute. 
Yeah, I I definitely want to talk about that, which is this idea that it comes up in so many different areas of constitutional law, where the Constitution gives us kind of a wink and a nod and a very small point in one direction. And then the rest is really left up to us. And it's genius, and it's maddening. And it's exactly why we have these conversations right now about what we can do about the Electoral College. Before we talk about what we're arguing about right now and what what we can do about it, why do we have this fundamentally anti-majoritarian system? Why do we have these buffers? I understand that the founders argued about how to elect the president basically throughout that whole constitutional summer. So how did they settle on this particular system? Uh, They were tired. Uh, they were hot, yes. they were hungry, and they just wanted to be done with the process. You know, they'd been in that room with sealed windows over the hot Philadelphia summer of 1787 uh, for about four months, and they they needed to get done. This was one of the last uh, remaining points of dispute. Uh, they actually had a committee called the Committee of, on Unfinished Parts, uh, uh, of which the Electoral College, or I should say the selection of the president, they didn't call it the Electoral College, uh, the selection of the president was one. And it was only after a group of delegates uh, got together in a side room of the convention hall and hammered out the words that now, uh, with some uh, adjustments, uh, exist in Article uh, 2, Section 1 of the Constitution that we got the system we have today. It was not a sort of carefully deliberated, uh, a brilliant um, you know, component of our constitutional design uh, that, that, that they created. They created something, basically they jerry-rigged something that everyone could agree to in those final harried days of the convention. They admitted this after the fact. You know, James Madison said uh, it, it was not, <laughs> it, it had a degree of, of the evidence of the fatigue of the men who wrote it. And, you know, the, I think a key point for people to remember is that George Washington had been sitting in that room all summer long. He was the presiding officer of the convention. And the, the, the delegates to the convention knew that no matter what system they instituted for choosing the president, and they did debate over a lot of different ways to do it, George Washington was going to be the first president. So the stakes weren't that high for them. They, they, they knew Washington's going to win whatever we do. Let's just get this thing done and we'll worry about it later. The thing that most people don't know is that almost immediately the system stopped working the way that the framers thought that it would work. And it has never worked the way they thought it would work since. So let's pick up. I mean, you served up a perfect question for me. Let's pick up on that. What was it originally designed to do? And how did that original design kind of go to hell so quickly? I know this is something very recently, the last term, the Supreme Court talked about what's the Electoral College designed to do, but what's actually happened in practice? Right. Well, to the extent that there was any guiding philosophy behind it, uh, we can look at, you know, one one element was the concern that uh, regular people in the country just wouldn't know enough about candidates for national political office. Uh, this is different, I think, than saying the, the the framers feared democracy or you know didn't trust the people. Th- these are common things that we hear, right? And that's that's the sort of throwaway line for why they in, uh, adopted an electoral college. But it's really not the complete story. Remember, the, these are the same framers who were more than happy to let the people vote directly for their members of the House of Representatives, and they thought the House was going to be the most important, most influential, most consequential branch of government. So they weren't concerned about direct voting. What they were concerned about, and I think with some good reason, was that most people just couldn't know enough about 
uh, candidates who weren't in their immediate vicinity, like their House members were. So a voter from Massachusetts just wouldn't know enough about a candidate from Georgia and vice versa, that, that sort of thing. So I, you know, there were more than a few delegates expressed concerns along those lines. And the Electoral College was a way to deal with that. It was to say, here's a body of men, of course, only men at the time, white property men at that, who are um, knowledgeable enough about the political scene in the country, who are you know respected enough and who are educated and who can deliberate and choose who would be the fittest person to hold that office. Um, you know, this is a, they were creating this office for the first time. They didn't have one under the Articles of Confederation. And they were a little nervous about how do we choose this person? Are we going to choose someone who becomes another tyrant like King George? Or are we going to choose someone who's completely ineffectual, uh, like <laughs> the, the system they had had before? You know, so, so they were trying things out and they were basically flying blind. That was the system that they adopted. Why did they adopt that system in particular? I, I mean, there's a, there are a bunch of factors that go into it, but I think one that I talk about at length in the book is the, is the influence of slavery and of the uh, protection of the interests of slaveholding states, which of course is a thread that uh, runs through the entire convention and is really you know, at the heart of every major compromise uh, that was made there. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the delegates, of course, adopted, agreed to in, in July, the, what we call the three-fifths compromise. And that is uh, giving the Southern slaveholding states uh, representation in Congress for three-fifths of their slaves, or counting each slave as three-fifths of a free white person for the purposes of representation. That gave them an enormous boost in the national legislature. They got 12 to 14 extra representatives uh, than they would have had uh, uh, if they didn't get to count their slaves. And of course, because of the system they adopt for electing the president, they get to translate those 12 to 14 extra representatives into 12 to 14 electors for the president. So it's really um, all of these factors working together that I think lead us to the jerry-rigged system that we uh, still live with today. Yeah, it is really important to remember that this three-fifths clause, it really baked into the system such a fundamental inequality. And it's one that I think we've lived with in various forms for a long time. And we have, of course, the Electoral College creates all sorts of different but somewhat similar echoes of similar inequalities. And one thing that I've said for the past four years, perhaps too glibly, and I hope we can kind of circle back to it, you mentioned it a little bit, is I've said the Electoral College was one of the goals, at least, was to act as a safety valve. So it was to protect us in a way against ourselves, not because the founders didn't trust democracy, as you said, they did, because they thought the House of Representatives was going to be really important and powerful, but because they wanted to make sure that we might not know the presidential candidates well, we might be duped, we might accidentally vote for an unqualified demagogue. Is it true that originally the Electoral College was supposed to have this kind of safety valve saving us from ourselves purpose? I do think there's an element of that. There certainly were delegates at the convention who were concerned about that. They called them designing men, right? But you're right. They, they were concerned about uh, demagogues, right? They were concerned about exactly the kind of people uh, that uh, we see uh, in power right now, uh, both in the United States and around the world. And I think so. So that's a particular irony of the system that they designed, that that's the only reason that we have uh, this particular leader today. But, you know, I, I want to pull back a little bit and just sort of point out that what the framers designed is not the system that really ever operated. So this idea yeah. that these 
intelligent men would make a, a deliberate, considered choice for the president is not how it ever worked. Yes, George Washington won unanimously in the Electoral College in both his uh, you know, races for president in 1789 and then again in 1792. But by 1796, when he decides not to run again, we now have those national political parties that the framers did not anticipate. They did not design a constitution to accommodate political parties. Uh, And so what ends up happening is instead of the electors being these thoughtful, deliberative men who don't ascribe to any particular party or ideology, you have team sports. You have two sides battling against each other and the electors supporting those sides are just going to defend their guy no matter what. You know, and that's what we saw in the in the in the race at 1796 of Adams versus Jefferson. And that's what we've seen in every single election since then up until today. So this is something that if you could briefly just come down this little rabbit hole with me, this is something that the Supreme Court talked about, feels like 100,000 years ago, I think it was about four months ago, uh, when they made their decision in the faithless electors cases, where they talked about whether or not states had the power to punish electors who might go rogue and not vote for um, the candidate who was chosen by the popular vote of that state. And they talked a lot about the practice and what happens and that in reality, as you said, that electors don't kind of sway elections and that they don't act as this safety valve. Do you think it was, did the Supreme Court get those cases about right based on the practice when they said, yes, states, under the Constitution, you have the power to punish electors that might go rogue, these so-called loyalty laws. And we know you have the power in part because of the behavior of electors over all of these years. Well, here's what I'll do. And this might, you may see this as a bit of a dodge. I'm not going to weigh in um, strongly on either side of the legal debate here, because I know that there are actually some uh, extremely uh, sophisticated legal scholars, far smarter than I am on these issues, who disagree about whether the court got those decisions right in the in the faithless electors cases this summer. Here's what I will say, which is I will talk about the actual practice and function of electors over the history of the country. And that shows us really without question that electors have almost, almost without exception, been uh, team players. They have, they are chosen by one candidate or the other to vote for that candidate when they are, you know, if that candidate wins the most votes in in their state, they are then sent to the state capital in uh, whatever state they're in to vote for that candidate. They want to vote for that candidate. So, you know, faithless electors are extremely rare in American history for a very simple reason, which is that electors are party actors. They're partisan actors and they want to vote for the candidate they've been selected to vote for. Yes, some states do have laws that require them to vote for that candidate on pain of fine or even replacement, which we saw happen in 2016. And I think the reason this became such a big issue in 2016 is obviously that there were more faithless electors than there had ever been in American history, I think seven. And that was partly because Donald Trump was such an unusual candidate and triggered a lot of strong feelings among people on both sides of the aisle. But it's the exception that proves the rule. You know, the reason that the um, you know, the electors chose to vote for someone other than uh, the candidate they were pledged to vote for in 2016 wasn't that they suddenly had, a, had an attack of, you know, 
conscience and they wanted to, you know, support the other side. It was that they were still Democrats, the ones who <laughs> who did this, but they just wanted to find a way to keep Donald Trump from winning the White House. So that was the strategy in 2016. And I think what the courts recognized in those cases this summer was this is how electors have always behaved and this is how states have always treated them and that they were going to continue to let states do that. Yeah, I, I think that's exact. And I will take that dodge because there was so much good knowledge and expertise behind it. And I think it really helps us understand what actually happens, which these are largely uh, party loyalists. And that's why we never have seen electors sway an election before. So not even you- not even close. I mean, here, let me just give you one example. Let's, sorry to interrupt you, but oh, no. take take. Go back to 2000, right? So in 2000, it was one of the closest electoral college outcomes in American history. Uh, I think it was it was either the second or third closest outcome in the in the nation's history. Uh, in the end, George W. Bush wins with 260 271 electors, one more than the, than he needed in order to become president. Uh, all you needed was one elector to break faith, to to go another way uh, in order, or two electors, I guess you needed to push George W. Bush below uh, uh, the, you know, the majority that he needed and throw the election at least into the House of Representatives, if not give it outright to Al Gore. It didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? Because electors are partisan actors. All of those 271 electors wanted George W. Bush to be president. So of course they were going to vote for him, even though he had lost the popular vote, even though you could make an argument that the loser of the popular vote does not have the legitimacy that he should have to run the whole country. They still voted for him. So if, if, if all you needed was two and you couldn't even get those two, I just don't see how electors, faithless electors would ever swing any election. Yeah, I mean, it's a really fun, at least for me, legal discussion. But you're right that in the end, these are people who have been chosen on, you know, on both sides of the compact, basically, uh, because they're not going to go rogue. They're not going to do something that is uh, unexpected. And as you said, we've never even come close. And I love the Bush v. Gore example because it shows us how little it would have taken, but that we don't that's really just not our practice. And in part, you know, that brings us back to what the constitution actually provides. So you said this before, but I think it really has been lost in the conversations about the electoral college. What does the constitution say and what does it not say? Meaning what are really the only requirements that the constitution gives us with respect to the electoral college? Well, I'll put aside. So, so one requirement is that uh, an elector can't be a, a sitting uh, federal officer. Um, that's an obvious one. Uh, the other one is that states get the number of electors equal to their representation in Congress. And then there is this uh, the contingent election provision, which is something that hasn't been triggered since 1824, and which we pray to God will not be con- triggered this year or any other. I don't think there's anyone in America right now who supports this, and I, I won't go into the details of it for the moment because I want to focus on what I think is a slightly more important point, which is. That is all it is. There is nothing about the most common and most important and most salient features of the way the Electoral College functions today. Nothing about these things exist in the Constitution. I'll tell you what those are. Two things. One, that we, the people, actually vote ourselves in popular elections for the electors of our state. That is not required under the Constitution. As Justice Scalia made very clear in Bush v. Gore in 2000, 
the states have no requirement to let the people themselves play any role in choosing the president. The state lawmakers could just award the electors themselves however they like. They could do that today, and it's entirely constitutional. The fact that we all vote for our electors in our states is something that has been going on for virtually 200 years, so we assume it's just part of the Constitution. It's not. The other part that is not part of the Constitution, but that we just assume is part of it, is the winner-take-all laws that I mentioned at the very beginning and that are responsible for Donald Trump winning in 2016 and for George W. Bush winning in 2000. Those winner-take-all laws are state creations. States could award their electors however they choose. They choose to do it by winner-take-all, with the exception of two states, Maine and Nebraska, which do it by congressional district. Every other state uses the winner-take-all method. And that method is what I think is at the core of the distortion that the Electoral College, as it functions today, introduces into our system of government and into our campaigns. The reason for that is that when you have an election where all the voters in a state who don't choose the most popular, the candidate who who, who gets the most votes, all of those people are effectively erased. And that means that in, in the aggregate, tens of millions of Americans are effectively erased from the presidential election before the real election for president, the electoral college vote, even takes place. And that means you have two different kinds of states. You have what we call safe states, right, which is most states, blue, like what we call blue and red states. And then you have battleground states, the purple states. You know, those blue and red uh, images that we see on our on our U.S. map every four years, that's just an artifact of the winner-take-all rule. And it, 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 it represents nothing in reality about the political makeup of those states. There are millions and millions of Republicans in California. Do you know how many Republican, do you know how many votes Donald Trump got in California in 2016? He got four and a half million votes in California. <laughs> it's like, that's bigger than most states. And yet all of those people disappeared when the electoral vote happened. So yeah. the winner take all rule is really at the core of the violation of uh, you know majority rule and political equality that I, I think we that needs to change. I'm so glad that you highlighted this because people do think that winner take all, at least people who don't live in Maine and Nebraska, think that it's just a requirement of the system. And again, I mean, you already pointed this out, but Joe Biden could win California, which he will win it, but he could win it with 95% of the people who turn in ballots. He could win it with 50.001% of the people who turn in ballots. But the outcome in the Electoral College is the same. He just gets all of California's votes. And it's really stark to think of what a huge inefficiency gap there is in terms of how many more votes you get than you need and that that really is part of the system. Now- Right. The idea of wasted votes, right? The, the, this term wasted votes in a democracy, what a dis- disheartening idea. What an odious idea that we could call votes wasted. <laughs> you know, all votes should be counted in an election. All votes should matter. Yeah, I, I know. Wasted votes. It just and when we try so hard to get people to become civically engaged, to show up at the polls, to, you know, do their duty and become educated about all the issues. And then to say when it comes to the Electoral College, yeah, you know, actually, I'm sorry, we didn't need you so much, but thank you for your time. Your vote, you- right. Winner take all laws say to millions, tens of millions of Americans, your vote doesn't matter. And that's a horrible way to run a representative democracy. And, and it doesn't, it's not just a, um, you know, this isn't just sort of like an abstract principle I'm banging on about. This actually has on the ground impacts on both campaigning and governing. So when you have battleground states that are the only states candidates care about 
on both sides, not just the Republican side, the Democratic side too, you have basically the recipe for ignoring the interests and concerns of the vast majority of Americans who don't live in those states, who live in safe states. That's why Donald Trump can sort of look at California and look at New York and say, screw you, you know, which is what he's done all year. He, you know, he looks at wildfires in California and he refuses to issue an emergency declaration or he watches thousands and tens of thousands of people die in New York from COVID. And he just says, you know, go to hell because he knows he'll never win their electoral votes. That's a terrible incentive to give to the leader of the country. Yeah, I'm not going to go ahead and argue with that one. And I do want to come back to this issue because it's so important. And the way the Electoral College functions with these winner-take-all elections, the consequence, I just think, can't be overstated in terms of how much it changes, as you point out, not just campaigning, but also governing. But before we get there, why do states use this system? If you don't have to, and if I think you and I would agree, it creates this, at best, huge inefficiency and at worst, wasted votes, You know, depending on how you want to frame it. Why do so many states use this? Well, winner take all is the artifact of two things. One is of the of our two party system, right? Uh, if you have the political majority in a state and you want to matter to or be useful to your party's candidate, you're going to say, "Hey, we can deliver you all of our electors." Right? That's mm-hmm. a lot more meaningful than saying, "Oh, we can give you some of them because we're using a different system, like uh, the congressional district system or the or the proportional system." Um, so that's one thing, right? And Thomas Jefferson understood this back in 1800, where he wa- was watching states adopt that winner take all rule, and he said to the Virginia delegation, he said, "Hey, guys." If you don't adopt this while other states are, are doing it, you're crazy. You have to do it. And they and they did. And, and it's arguably one of the main reasons that Jefferson won in 1800. The other reason that states adopt this is because they don't get any penalty for uh, – the, the other reason states adopt this is there's no penalty for doing it. They get the same number of electoral votes no matter how many of their voters they count. All they have to do is – say this number of voters voted for our candidate and it's the most for any candidate and therefore we're giving all of our electors to that candidate. That's all they have to do. Imagine if you had a state that was actually punished for the way it treated its voters. You know, we probably would have had a, a civil war much sooner. We would have had the emancipation of the slaves much sooner. Women would have gotten the vote much sooner, but it really didn't matter because it didn't matter how many people in that state voted or were counted uh, for them to have their electoral votes. Yeah. And It seems like for those reasons that there's not an enormous amount of will to change the system. But let's go back to what we were just talking about. The Electoral College fundamentally changes the way presidential candidates run for office because I don't know if you know the statistic, but I know that some ungodly amount of money goes to the swing states. And then the safe states are basically ATMs where the candidates can come and they can raise money. But by the time you get to the general election, they're largely forgotten. And then as you point out, it also changes the way you govern. Because once you're in office, if particularly if you're running for re-election, you don't really have to think about those st- safe states all that much. Can you emphasize for us, I mean, how practically does that change? How have you seen campaigning just fundamentally be different? What would happen if we, I mean, let's do a thought experiment. What if we had the national popular vote? Would we get different types of presidential candidates? Would they talk about different issues? I mean, how much of a remaking of presidential elections would it be? 
So in the last chapter of my book, I talk with uh, uh, campaign managers and field directors from both Republican and Democratic presidential campaigns of the last quarter century. And I asked them that very question. I said, you know, how did you run your election? How did you run your campaign to win the election under the Electoral College? And then how would you have run it differently if you had to win a popular vote instead? And almost to a person, they all said they would rather have run a popular vote election. And be- that's because they saw the distortions that were introduced by the system that they had to run under. And they and while, you know, in some ways it was sort of more convenient just to be able to focus on, say, Ohio or Florida, they also saw how much they were ignoring large swaths of the country. And I think what they saw, and, and you know, I think they're better people to ask about this than anyone because they actually have to make a living running campaigns and winning elections. What they saw and what they understood was it really is a distortion of representative democracy when a candidate doesn't have to care about the vast majority of the country he is then elected to run. You know, these are really presidents of battleground states and not of the United States. Uh, just a few quick examples. You know, this happens on both sides. You know, Barack Obama, one of the first things he does is he bails out the auto industry in 2009, 2010, right? This is part of our, you know, the recovery from uh, the, the meltdown of 2008. But at the same time, you could ask, well, why did he choose that particular bailout? Well, where does the auto industry exist? It exists largely in Michigan and Ohio, you know, states that are battleground states that he needs to win, that Democrats need to win. And if there's any question about that, you know, the Democrat lost both those states in 2016. Donald Trump is more explicit about it, right? He's he's more than happy to, you know, screw all of the, you know, safe states and just focus on, say, fracking, right? Fracking is a great example because Fracking is this issue that really only affects directly a very small sliver of Americans. And yet we spent several minutes in the first debate arguing over it. Did Joe Biden support fracking? Did he oppose fracking? And I was like, come on, like there's a lot of other issues affecting tens of millions of Americans that don't ever get discussed. And that is really, I think, the insult to our to our not just our campaigning, which is one thing, but our actual governance. You look at the way that that presidents, you know, allocate um, disaster relief aid, the way that they they dole out certain types of federal grant money, all of it, they they give it in larger numbers and larger amounts to swing states, and they do so increasingly as you get closer to an election. This is not a surprise. You, it's like they call it pork pork barrel presidency. And it, and, and it's also, uh, it happens, it's a bipartisan uh, uh, failing. It happens on both sides, you know, uh, both Democratic and Republican presidents do it. And that's because the incentive structure is there for them to do it. All right. Having now made a, I think remarkably good case for why the Electoral College not even, not only distorts campaigns, but also governing, is there anything that's good about it? I mean, is there anything that you would put in the plus column. Is it, for instance, cheaper to run when you only have to worry about swing states? And therefore, does it at least reduce our influence of uh, the influence of money on politics? Um, no, there's nothing good about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so so it's not cheaper. Uh, th- I think that just looks at it through the wrong end of the telescope. Uh, campaigns will raise as much money as they raise, and they will spend as much money as they raise. And they will spend it in the way they need to spend it. I don't think it's going to be that it's more expensive. It's just that they spend the, the money that they raise differently. Um, right now, they they concentrate, as you pointed out earlier, they concentrate almost all of it, 95% or more of it, in just a few battleground states. You know, everybody else, small states, big states, 
urban states, rural states, northern states, southern states, they're all ignored because they're all safe states, right? Everybody focuses on just those swing states. Uh, I think, you know, if you had, uh, you would raise probably the same amount of money in a popular vote election, they would just spend it differently. They would spend it all over the country to win votes all over the country. So no, I really don't think there are any redeeming qualities to the system that we have now. And I think the only reason that we have it is A, inertia, and B, because one party or sometimes the other thinks that it uh, benefits them politically in the short term, and they're not willing to undertake a real reform to change it. Okay, so let's pivot to, because I am typically a master, and I worry I do this in class, of, hey, everybody, there's a lot of problems. And let me tell you about all these problems. And they are, I'm not overstating it. These are really, really bad problems. And then I say, all right, good class. So before (laughs) we end class, before we end this episode, what can we do about it? It sounds like actually there's a great deal of flexibility that does not require a constitutional change because there's not all that much in the constitution. I mean, can we try and convince states to move away from winner take all? I know that there's a national popular vote compact. Maybe you can talk to us about what that is and whether either option is realistic or there are other options we should be considering. Sure. So let me just put this in context briefly. There have been more than 800 attempts throughout American history to either amend or abolish the Electoral College from the Constitution. That is far more than for any other single provision of the Constitution. And I think what it goes to show is that people have seen from the beginning how this system is broken and how it needs to be reformed. And I don't think the founders would probably disagree with that. I think they would say, yeah, we, we kind of, we punted on that one and we made some mistakes. However, we have come extremely close once to abolishing the Electoral College through a constitutional amendment, and that was in the late 1960s. And I tell this story in my book in chapter five is this really dramatic story of Senator Birch Bayh, who's a Democrat from Indiana, first term senator, who basically uh, takes on the task of abolishing the Electoral College through a constitutional amendment. And he gets remarkable levels of support from all areas of the country and from both sides of the aisle. So by the late 1960s, he has support from 80% of Americans who say they want a popular vote for president. It's Republicans, it's Democrats all over the place. It's, you know, President Richard Nixon after he's elected supports it. George H.W. Bush supports it. You know, uh, people, uh, Republicans and Democrats, Chamber of Commerce, League of Women Voters, it's just everybody is behind it. And it passes the House of Representatives in 1969 overwhelmingly by, I think, a vote of 339 to 70, uh, an amendment to abolish the Electoral College in favor of a popular vote. Uh, passes the House, the only time in American history that's happened. It looks like you're coming close to having enough states to ratify that amendment. So the only last step is getting it through the Senate. And it gets stalled in the Senate and then filibustered until it dies. Who filibusters it? It's led by three Southern segregationists, right? The, The descendants of slaveholders themselves. And I think that is really sort of the sad coda to the beginning of the Electoral College, which was also born out of an, a spirit of racial subjugation and discrimination, that it never really goes away, right? This, this effort to keep Black voices silent in our national politics is still alive and well in the late 1960s. So after that, it sort of seemed like, well, we'll never amend the, the, the Electoral College out of the Constitution. After 2000, This new plan that you just referred to develops the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. In the early 2000s, a a computer scientist from uh, Northern California named John Koza presents this idea, which is actually pretty simple and pretty elegant. 
And that is this winner. It's, it, it targets the winner take all rule. It says, well, how about rather than states giving their votes to the winner of their statewide vote, they give their votes to the winner of the national vote, the vote of the, 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 the candidate who wins the most votes in all 50 states combined plus D.C. And that way, when states representing a majority of, of electoral votes join into this agreement, you automatically make the candidate who wins the most votes in the country the president. That solves the battleground state dilemma that we've been talking about. It forces the candidates to campaign everywhere, win support everywhere, and it gives you a president who actually is a president for the entire country. It is Greek tragedy level that it, it was a filibuster that ends the movement to change the Electoral College. I mean, it is like piles of anti-majoritarian <laughs> mechanisms on top of anti-majoritarian institutions. And um, thank you for continuing to really bring us down on that. Um, now, what about the National Popular Vote Compact? What do you see in the next eight years, 16 years? Is this something that's likely to happen? Well, right now it has 15 member states plus D.C. So together they represent 196 electoral votes. Remember, we said that the compact doesn't actually take effect until uh, 270 electoral votes have joined. So they're right. 74 votes shy. Now, from one angle, you could say, oh, that's pretty close. They're more than two thirds of the way there. Unfortunately, that's going to be a big lift, that last 74. I think, you know, all of the states that have joined to date have Democratic leadership or had Democratic leadership when they joined. And, you know, it's a, it, that's unfortunate because it makes it look as though this is a Democratic plot to take over the White House. You know, it's not that. It's actually trying to count everybody everywhere equally, uh, as opposed to what happens right now, which is most people don't matter at all in the election. How do I think you get the rest of those 74 electoral votes? I think it's, it's, it's a big lift, but it can be done and it could be done within the next two or three cycles. Uh, here's one way that I've been thinking about it recently. And that's, you know, I think the best example to use is a state like Texas. Texas is not a battleground state right now. Texas is a, you know, reliably Republican state, which means there are still millions of Democrats there, remember, uh, but it, it, it has a majority of Republican voters and, and the Republican candidate almost always wins it uh, and has always won it for, for several decades. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, 38 electoral votes. That's a huge pot. Um, it's more than w well over 10% of what they need to become president. Texas is very rapidly moving away from red and toward purple and possibly even blue. Uh, and if that happens, and I think, it, you know, I don't think it's going to happen this year, but the fact that we're even discussing its possibility should terrify Republicans. Because if it happens in 2024 or 2028, they are not going to have any plausible path to the White House through the Electoral College. And then suddenly, I think Republicans as well as Democrats see, oh, this system that we use for electing the president, this is a disaster. Donald Trump, of course, said this in 2012, right? He tweeted, the Electoral College is a disaster for democracy. Well, he tweeted that for the same reason that we all are mad about it, because he thought his candidate was going to win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College. So I think this idea of majority rule is really ingrained in all of us. And we all want to see the candidate who wins the most votes become president. The fact that the candidate who wins fewer votes can become president is really a, a deep insult to representative democracy. And I think everybody knows that. And the only people who are willing to say it right now are the ones who've suffered under uh, our existing system. I think if Republicans start to see that they can't even win the Electoral College 
without, uh, you know, they just they just can't win it because of the demographics and the politics, the changing politics of the nation. I think they're going to start to sing a pretty different tune. Will Democrats then start similarly singing a different tune and say, you know, this electoral college, I think there's actually something to it. (laughs) It's a fair question. And I think we have seen that happen in the past. Democrats have certainly defended the college when they've thought that it benefits them. Um, And there are some really interesting stories in my book about that and the changing fortunes of each party. Um, Here's what I think about that. Yes, in theory, it's possible that the Democrats will suddenly become the defenders of the Electoral College. I think after the last few decades, and especially the last four years, I think it's going to be hard for Democrats to walk that back and suddenly say, oh, we're good with this sort of counter-majoritarian system that was designed in part to protect the interests of slaveholders. Like the party is too identified now with voting equality, with inclusiveness, with racial equality, all of the things that I think a popular vote emphasizes. And I think it's going to be hard for them, especially when Democrats feel like they often, you know, they have a good shot at winning the popular vote just because they appeal to a lot of people. It's going to be hard for them to backtrack on that and say, oh, no, no, now we support the system that helped us to win. Um, you're right to flag it as a, as a concern, but I just think given the, the nature of the politics of the last decade in particular, I, I don't think it's going to happen. A little bit of optimism, perhaps. Jesse Wegman, we have learned a lot from you. Now we would like to learn a little bit more about you. As listeners of Passing Judgment know, I end the podcast by asking my guests the same three questions. So here we go. Question number one, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party? Hmm. You know, that answer could change as a matter of (laughs) by the week. Um, but lately I've been thinking a lot about Frederick Douglass and I would love to sit down and hear his thoughts on, in particular, the way we choose the president, because he was a, you know, a, a great advocate of the idea that, uh, the constitution itself contains the seeds of its own uh, remediation and that, uh, you know, in fact, we can use the very documents of our founding to, uh, vindicate the principles that we have never quite lived up to. So I would love to hear how he applies that faith and that reasoning to the, the selection of the president in particular. Question number two, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal with you. What is it? One meal? Really? Really? Um, Boy, that's a good question. I really, I really love, uh, I really love burritos for some reason. I just like, you know, just beans and rice basically and, 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 and some other, you know, toppings like (laughs) salsa, sour cream, guacamole, like that's it. That's pretty much all I need. All right. Then last, you get a superpower for one hour. What is it? Oh my. This is going to sound weird. There's a part of me, the empathetic, sort of curious part of me that wants to know what it feels like to be a Donald Trump supporter right now. I have just watched in mystification over the last four years as people continue to support him. And I, if I could have a superpower, it would be to transform just briefly into a supporter of the president and see what it feels like and see how I justified my own position, even given everything uh, that uh, he said and done these past four or five years. So I don't know if that sounds like a superpower to you, but it, it feels like one to me. Given America in 2020, when none of us are reading from the same script and you put an object on a table and Republicans say, I like that triangle and Democrats say, what a beautiful circle. I think that that is a totally fair answer. 
Jesse Wegman, thank you for passing judgment with us. You can find Jesse on Twitter at Jesse Wegman, all one word. Please check out his book, Let the People Pick the President. It is a fantastically written book. It is super interesting. I was angry. I was gratified. I learned a lot. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you so much to our listeners, and we will see you next time. <laughs>